A warm welcome to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Once again, the final time for 2022. Daniel Bezik alongside Nick Skinner in Reykjavik. Roles kind of reversed here in that it's a morning recording here in Sydney and an evening recording late at night in Iceland, Nick. Uh, dinner done and dusted. How's everything? And uh, how are you building up for the uh, festive season? Oh, yes, it's uh, it's very nice. We've just had the first snowfall of the year. Um, about, I don't know, like almost a metre of snow Oof. fell in a couple of days. It was, it was uh, well, it was beautiful. But um, I, I guess what I'm discovering is that, you know, it looks very nice, but then... People walking all over it basically compacts it down. So after a couple of days, you're essentially uh, walking on ice throughout the city. So um, that's that's been a challenge getting used to the what's what's essentially just a very long ice skating rink uh, now. All the streets in Reykjavik. So fun experience in winter for an Australian. Yeah, well here it's been unseasonably cool heading into Christmas, though by all reports, Christmas Day is meant to be quite warm here. So uh, I'll be in a pool while you'll be skating, well, <laughs> makeshift skating on, on ice in the in the streets of uh, the capital city. So looking forward to seeing some of that, Nick. Uh, there's been some, oh, plenty of action on and off the field in the emerging world. There's just so much. We'll, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but Rwanda's become the first country to host 100 T20I matches in a single calendar year across men's and women's cricket, just to kind of indicate how much cricket there has been in the world this year. We'll talk about uh, the East Africa T20 men's competition in a moment, but we'll start, I suppose, to some news that filtered through and was broken almost by accident. And I would be able to put my hand up and claim this, although I can't really say I can. There's been a change uh, to some of the Challenge League cutoff dates in terms of how that structure might look for uh, next year and the next series and the next cycle. And it just came through uh, the November ICC meetings that never really went public, but it has quite wide sweeping ramifications for, well, everyone sort of on the bubble in that T20I ranking uh, and looking to get and move up into the Challenge League 50 over system. So uh, if people remember going back to the Challenge League, which is now recently completed, the teams to finish in the bottom two of each of those groups now face the relegation playoff next year. It will contain the top four countries from outside the Challenge League structure who meet requirements regarding national domestic one-day cricket and their T20I ranking. Now, the cutoff date for this was the 31st of December of this year, i.e. New Year's Eve in just about a week's time. Uh, that's been moved back to as far as the 30th of September next year, which opens up a, a whole new can of worms in regards to if teams can qualify, if teams make the requirements both on the field and their T20I ranking. Uh, as it stands, Q810, Zania, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain would be the next four. But to look at it holistically, these nations need to fulfill requirements from 50 over domestic cricket standpoint. And we're not 100% sure how a lot of these teams kind of fit in their 50 over cricket, if they do fit it in at all, Nick. But it's a big decision by the ICC to make. It gives teams a little bit of extra time, uh, a little bit less of a rush. And it seems like a lot of these teams, you know, playing out there in the field, probably looking to squeeze in as many matches as they can. Now have a little bit of extra time, but also have the chance potentially to kind of set some one-day cricket up in the country. I don't know how late, you know, teams and countries can put that all together, but it means there's going to be potentially quite a different four that enter in that race for the Challenge League spots. Yeah, it's an interesting decision. A bit of a typical ICC way of going about it where they make this decision and then a few months later it kind of accidentally gets out and because no one bothered to... 
<laughs> to announce it. But um, you know, don't don't deprive yourself of the credit there. Bears an accidental scoop is still a scoop, so uh, you know, well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, very uh, yeah, very typical um ICC. Um, yeah, it kind of makes you wonder whether someone in one of those four nations who stands to to make the playoff pointed out that they weren't quite ready yet or they needed to finalise their domestic tournaments or something along those lines. Or um, All of these countries are sort of a bit of a mystery. Tanzania play a fair bit of cricket, but the other three, their domestic setups are, are a bit opaque, so we don't really know what's going on at a local level, In I guess in a lot of countries in the Gulf, really, um, even though their teams on the field have been going from strength to strength. So if it's just kind of there to give these other teams a bit more time to sort of get everything in place, I, I don't think it's necessarily a problem. Although, as you sort of allude to, the, the question then becomes you know, how they're all going to cram in the playoffs and various other qualification things uh, within the end of this cycle. Um, but I, <laughs> I guess that's a tomorrow ICC problem. Uh, the the board might have decided to just just sort of kick the can down the road on that one, but yeah, I mean as you say, Kuwait, Tanzania, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain you could see Germany sneaking in there, you know, sort of quickly schedule something next year and try and get their ranking points up, but uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to keep an eye on. And I mean, looking a bit further down the track to when this qualifying playoff actually happens. All four of these teams have a pretty good chance based on you know what we've seen lately from them. Yeah. Saudi Arabia's beaten Bahrain. Bahrain's played quite well against Canada, although they didn't beat them. They beat Qatar a number of times. Uh, Kuwait's been there or thereabouts. Tanzania, of course, we've, we've seen them play a fair bit um, <laughs> in recent times, Yeah. Um, which which we can get to in a minute. But, you know, I think all four of them are worthy candidates in terms of their on-field performances recently. Uh, and, you know, looking at who they'll be up against, Bermuda, Italy on one side, Vanuatu and Malaysia on the other. Um, it's all kind of much of a muchness, you know. All four of those teams are very beatable for, you know, even Germany, if they manage to slip into the into that four who go up to the, the playoff. You know, I, I think they could easily beat any of those Challenge League teams as well on a good day. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how this all shakes out. But I think credit to the ICC in a way. I mean, we always complain about them not having enough cricket, but if if they've if they've managed to sort of incentivize these teams to play a bunch of cricket, um, which as I said, we'll, we'll get to in a minute, but there's quite a lot of cricket happening around that cutoff point, sort of a little bit on either side. So if that's motivated the teams to get on the field, good good for them. Yeah, we want this to be as meritocratic as possible and the relegation playoff will probably be the best barometer in judging which of these teams you know fit that challenge league standard but it's a good opportunity for a lot of these teams just to, to push in and you would like to think there'd be enough matches being played between now and then and, and in the sort of previous period where we can decipher who are better t20 teams by virtue of the the rankings fingers crossed and and we know that we harp on about how the rankings are, are no good for stuff particularly stuff like this but when you do play this many matches, you'd like to think that the, the numbers kind of work themselves out. It's to go back to, I suppose, some of the old, you know, the old World Cricket League days, and, and I know we'll never go back to them, but... He sounds so nostalgic, Bez. Uh, yeah, it's just a funny kind of point in cricketing history now where we in 50 over cricket, we've only got a structure so big, and, and this is the best way that we can sort of filter teams back into it, and it goes back to a different format in a T20I format, but again, with this date sort of moving back to, to kind of re-emphasize the point, you would like to think that the best teams come through there. And I think when we spoke to Brian Mantle about this, I think it was just when the Challenge League 
cycle had started and he was upset that Germany just didn't quite make that threshold at the time and they had everything else set up and they're definitely one of the teams will be knocking down the door and I think we know that they're a team that meet every other requirement it's just a case of finishing sort of in that top four to to go through and as you mentioned some of those teams that are sitting in the top four their one day structures are as you said a little bit more opaque and just looking at, at the teams that you know obviously come down and play in that playoff there were some really disappointing performances I know we'll talk about them in a moment in another competition, but Singapore have done well just to manage to avoid finishing in the bottom two after just such a horrid run there at the end. You're looking at Malaysia, Bermuda, Italy and Vanuatu. I I fear for someone like Bermuda, who is struggling to put out 11 players capable at this level of international cricket. Italy, I'm not so worried about, and I think Malaysia probably have enough quality. And Vanuatu on their day, you would like to think would be too strong for the opposition below. But, you know, the likes of Germany and a couple of other teams waiting in the wings uh, have been good in recent times. So we look forward to that. That competition's a long way away now, given that cutoff point. You know, we're probably not going to see that competition until... I'd say maybe this time next year, maybe sort of early December, late November. But we'll look forward to that. And a lot of those teams will be going through some sort of, you know, T20i cricket on the way into that too. And speaking of uh, Tanzania, they are featuring in an East Africa T20 men's competition uh, hosted by Rwanda and Uganda. The cricket cranes are there as well. As mentioned at the top of the show, Rwanda. Uh, and a lot of these games are at the Kahunga Stadium, best ground in the world. I uh, don't think anyone here needs that point reinstate, or sorry, reinforced. But Careful, our Napoli friends uh, might take exception to that. Uh, best best backdrop in international cricket can be found probably in Pokhara <laughs> uh, alongside Dharamshala. But the Kahunga Stadium have featured most of these over 100 T20i matches now in a calendar year, men's and women's combined. So many competitions that have swept through there. Qualifiers, some qualifiers not even containing Rwanda as well. Uh, one of the sub-regional tournaments there uh, obviously didn't feature Rwanda because they're in the other one that was also hosted by Rwanda. Uh, each team playing each other six times in this. Apparently a, a broadcaster and a sponsor's demand. But I think when we have... T20 international cricket like this for associate members. I don't think we're going to complain with teams playing each other six times. Uh, meaningless bilateral series from a full member standpoint. That's a, a different kettle of fish. But good to see teams getting a good hit out here. At least the competition and organisers had the sense of not having a final because you'd like to think that uh, a team would be able to distance themselves after playing against each other six times. But Uganda, uh, as we do record, this competition not quite finished yet, but I think they've done enough to, to win the competition. Too good. A couple of usual names, of course, stepping up for their respective teams. The eternal Frank Unzebuga still around and taking wickets for his team. But Uganda probably just showing that they're just slightly a class above in this region. And, you know, the, the, the Challenge League standings would probably indicate that as well, Nick. But a good performance by the cricket cranes. Yeah, I mean, not too surprising. Although, uh, you know, Tanzania has sort of been nipping at their heels for a while. I think it's worth dwelling on uh, Frank Nussabuga's record here. He's actually the second uh, wicket taker behind his teammate Henry Senyondo, another off-spinner. Both of them averaging 7.3 across the tournament. Um, and both of them very difficult to hit with Senyondo taking his 17 wickets at an economy rate of 4.14. And Frank Nusabuga, 3.35. No one seems to have a clue about how to hit him. He's um, moved into 
the top spot in terms of career economy rates in T20 men's international cricket uh, with a, a career economy rate of 4.5 across 41 matches. Well, I mean, 41 official T20 international matches since uh, Uganda gained status along with every other associate in, in 2019. But yes, uh, you know, it's it's funny because this guy's career, according to, um, you know, official stats only started three years ago, but he's been playing for Uganda and for East Africa before that, uh, since the, the mid to late 90s. So, um, yeah, a, a great career and showing no signs of stopping. But um, obviously, Uganda's bowling lineup, when you've got two guys like that just tying the opponents in knots, it's always going to be hard for anyone to, to get over the line against that. Um, but, you know, Uganda's batting actually hasn't been that dominant. Uh, there's been a few other names putting their, themselves forward. Oshid Tuyasengi from Rwanda. Rajivan from Tanzania, both having very good tournaments. Rwanda, you know, looking at their performance here, they managed to scrape a single victory against Tanzania, um, and, and that's about it so far, unless they turn it around on the last day of play. So maybe a little bit disappointing. Um, they've been kind of uh, just a, a step behind the top associates in the region for a little while now, and, and you, you might have hoped that they'd improve a little bit, but getting a win against Tanzania is... Um, uh, is a good effort for them, and I think it might have actually been their first win against Tanzania uh, in an official T20i. But yeah, a couple of good talents coming through to Yasengi and with the ball as well for them. Kevin Irokozi, the the off spinner uh, who's come through the under 19s program. He's been bowling very well uh, in the top five for the wicket takers, uh, 13 wickets. Uh, economy rate shade over seven, so he's he's the best effort for them. But um, you know, Tanzania's young guns have have also come through. Salum Jumbe, the the quick bowler, number three on the wicket tally, and Yelinde Nakanya, the left arm orthodox, uh, he's number number four as well on the wickets. So the next generation is looking promising and. It'll be interesting to see how Tanzania um, kind of push on in the next couple of years, especially with, as we've discussed, the the rankings uh, cut off looming. Um, whether their you know their young guys can kind of power them through and push them into the the next level because you know if they if they do stay in that promotion zone, if they can get into the Challenge League, uh, as we've seen with a number of teams, just having steady cricket over a couple of years, and yes, it was disrupted by COVID, but just just having like predictable 50 over cricket i think will do a lot of good for tanzania's cricket uh, more generally and perhaps let them take a, another step up uh, as their team improves and they you know increase that competition that we've seen in the east africa region and henya was originally supposed to be playing in this tri series uh, which is sort of why it changed to being a <laughs> I don't know, a sextuple round robin um, <laughs> instead of instead of a triple round robin <laughs> because, um, yeah, as you allude to, the, the broadcasters wanted a certain number of games. And, um, and you know, I, I think, honestly, a lot of the um, the, the players wanted a, a hit out and these guys don't necessarily get to play a whole lot of cricket. So, um, yeah, I mean, as you say, I, I don't think I'll really uh, complain too much about having too much cricket um, being played in, in associate circles. Um, it, it is kind of interesting seeing these teams being afflicted by the same external pressures as full members often are. You know, we saw that useless <laughs> um, white ball series between England and Australia just after the T20 World Cup that sort of no one really cared about, but they were just fulfilling due to broadcasting commitments. And yeah, I guess broadcasting commitments are 
filtering down the rankings and you know we've been able to to watch a little bit of this series and yeah as i say more more cricket the better at, at this level moving to the women's side uganda also taking out uh, a women's quadrangular series held in kenya nairobi also featured of course the hosts tanzania and Qatar. uganda were pretty strong all the way through they, they topped the group with five wins out of six uh and then going on to beat kenya in the final as well a number of uh, solid performances. Fatima Kabasu again standing up and, and a good stat uh, for her that we got from Hypercost. And I'll let you run through that as well. Pretty solid performance by Uganda, albeit dropping that match. But honestly, quite a competitive Tri-Nations group. I know that Qatar went winless going into a new part of the world and playing some cricket in a, in a different region, always very difficult. But looking at the rest of the field here, Tanzania three wins and finishing third. Kenya second with with four wins again this only proves that this region is has become a really competitive region for for cricket at this level and i know geographically we talk about the ease it can be from getting to to place to place here and that's probably almost a little bit disingenuous knowing that you know they might be close geographically but you know i'm not sure what it's like sort of jumping on planes getting to and from the likes of Kenya and Rwanda uh, for, for African boards, but they seem to put up a lot of international cricket again, this time on the women's side, and Uganda again too strong. Yeah, I think it's... Um, I guess we've seen with Kenya pulling out of that uh, tri-series, it, it can be difficult sometimes to travel um, for various reasons. I guess organisational, uh, financial, you know, flights around the region aren't necessarily cheap. So uh, I think it's good that, that they are getting on the field as much as they are. Obviously, having facilities good enough to host these tournaments is very helpful. Um, we've seen that record that you mentioned, the um, the most international T20 matches in a calendar year. Great effort from, from Rwanda to do that. And, you know, you couldn't really imagine that have being the case. You know, even sort of five years ago, it would, would have been ridiculous to say that Rwanda would hold that kind of record. So I think it, it has shown that, um, yeah, we've, we've seen a bit of progress in that time. Um, I think... Obviously, having a facility, as, as we say, like the Gahanga uh, to, to host stuff and, and, of course, the Gymkhana in Nairobi, which uh, I guess it's a little bit run down compared to the glory days when they were, you know, <laughs> beating Sri Lanka at the World Cup or whatever. But, yeah, they've, they've managed to get on the field. They hosted a men's series a little earlier in the year with Nepal as well. So, you know, if Kenya's getting back in the game of, of hosting cricket, um, I think that's good too because, yeah, always, you know, we've, we've got these teams in the region and, and they are kind of... A lot of them at a pretty similar level, and and the fact that it sort of makes me think, you know, you, you talked about the the old World Cricket League, um, and and that was such a I guess greenhouse for talent because you know you had teams like Ireland and Afghanistan looking back a few years, you know the Netherlands obviously, uh, Scotland there and thereabouts, you know you had all these very strong associate teams playing each other on a you know on a consistent regular basis. We're seeing it now with um, you know Cricket World Cup League Two, they're just playing fair bit of cricket against each other and and it's just helping to lift the overall standard and teams like Namibia who've come through that system um, when they do get to the World Cup are able to to compete against teams like Sri Lanka so the fact that these African boards are getting so much cricket happening is only good for cricket both in terms of the individual boards who are playing here but also cricket in general in the region because then you know teams like Kenya and Uganda become sort of the benchmark and teams like Rwanda are then sort of competing to to catch up um qatar is an interesting one their women's teams um sort of played in fits and starts they play the odd tournament here and there the fact they got on the bandwagon and it shows good initiative 
you know, for them to uh, to make the effort of, of getting over to Kenya to get on the field because they're one that, that really don't get enough enough play, even though we saw you know, the, the golf women's tournament a, a little while ago. I guess it would have been good if they could get a win, but, you know, I, I think their women's team is, is at a stage where they just need to get as much cricket as possible under the belt. Uh, yeah, Tanzania, maybe a little bit disappointed they couldn't have made the final. They beat Uganda. They beat... Uh, Qatar twice, uh, and it was against Qatar that um, Fatima Kabasu became the first woman to score three T20I centuries, leading the runs tally in the tournament with 221 runs at a, an average of 37 and 124 strike rate. And yes, uh, Hypercost also pointed out that she's become the fastest woman in terms of matches to reach 1,000 T20I runs, which is a, a fantastic effort from her. Doing it in 30 matches only, um, that's just ahead of Isha Oza from the UAE and Charlotte Edwards uh, from England, who reached the milestone in 31 and 35 matches respectively. So congratulations to Kabasu, Tanzania's skipper. Um, she also got some pretty good support from opening partner Saum Matai, who's a lot younger. You know, she's only 20 years old, so maybe we're seeing kind of the, the master and apprentice situation at the top of the top of the order for Tanzania, and hopefully they can build on that success and, and get a more solid uh, solid 11 because, you know, they've, they've got the talent. Obviously, there's Kabasu, but now, they do have some, some good players coming through as well uh, on the women's side as well as on the men's side. You know, they're, they're another exciting African associate, but Uganda just way too good with the ball, even though their batting was a little bit fragile, I guess. Um, the, the positive <laughs> kind of spin you can put on it is that they uh, they made a team effort, but they really are missing a, a top-quality batter, which is what they'll need to sort of push on and get past uh, Zimbabwe or even Namibia to, to qualify out of the region in women's cricket. Um, nobody for Uganda was averaging above 20 or indeed in the top five run scorers. Janet Mbabazi was, was their best batter with 116 runs, striker at bang on 100 and um, uh, an average of 19.3, which, I mean, that's not really good enough. Proskovia Alako batted quite well in, in terms of strike rate, hitting at 134 with the most sixes in the tournament, um, hitting five, but, you know, she's only averaging 15. And then this is the thing... This has always uh, been kind of a, a problem for Uganda is that they, they bowl very well, but they their batting lets them down. In this tournament, they've been able to get away with it uh, because their bowling's just been so good. Um, and, and the bowling was, sh- you know, the wickets were shared around. Ember Bazi was actually uh, third on the wickets tally with nine wickets, uh, a economy rate of 4.7. Irene Alumo, fifth with eight wickets, uh, economy rate 3.76. Sarah Akiteng, Concia Waco, Evelyn Anyipo, um, all very difficult to get away. They were coming in at positions 7, 8, and 9. So, you know, that's that's five Ugandan bowlers in the top 10 wicket takers. So it just goes to show that their their bowling really is their strength. Uh, Konsi Aweko also went past a landmark in, in this tournament. She uh, equals Nataya Butchertam's record of 40 T20i wickets in a calendar year, taking the wickets at an average of 9.4 and an economy rate of 3.9. And uh, Janet Mbabazi rounds out the year, uh, coming in at number 4. Uh, with 36 T20i wickets in the calendar year. So a good effort from them. Flavia Odiambo from Kenya and oh, sorry, and Paris Kamunya, a couple of seam bowlers, both uh, just 20 years old. They were the, the two uh, bowlers who were ahead of Mbabazi on the wicket tally. So some good work from the other teams. But yeah, Kenya seemed to really be slipping behind Uganda at this level. Uh, they, they were missing Sarah Watoto, uh, the, the all-rounder. 
Uh, and Quintor Abel, I think, picked up an injury mid-tournament. Um, but yeah, it was basically a pretty solid first-choice 11, and, and they, they did struggle. So I think Uganda are, are pulling ahead. But yeah, they, they just are lacking a, a sort of a, a top-quality batter, and that, I think, will be the difference uh, between them and you know, Zimbabwe or, or Namibia when we get to a, a broader, let's say, a qualifier or maybe even the Kubuka next year. We'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out moving forward but moving to Malaysia uh, a men's quadrangular T20 series being played out there Malaysia so far and we're recording this before this competition this tournament is run and done Malaysia doing the early running with four wins out of five Bahrain and Qatar certainly competitive but I think one of the big stories I think from this particular series thus far has just been how disappointing Singapore have been competition's not over but You'd have to say that they're out of the race and uh, it's a huge fall from grace for Singapore and we know that a lot of things have been well documented over the last sort of couple of years. They lost Tim David, but this is not a collapse, you know, with just one man's absence being responsible for all this. You know, they've lost a couple of players over the last few years, but struggled to put together any semblance of a good performance in any format, whether it be 50 over cricket at the Challenge League in that last leg or here in T20i cricket. They come here and they look like battlers at the moment, it must be said, Nick. Uh, I know that the rest of the field here is quite competitive and, and Bahrain and Qatar pushing each other, you know, to sort of match the likes of Malaysia. But while I think the story could well be Malaysia charging ahead and the only points they've dropped have been a, a no result, I think the biggest story in all of this is, is just how much Singapore have struggled, Nick. Yeah, I mean, Singapore have just continued their terrible form from the, the recent Challenge League in Malaysia where they're sort of staying back from the Challenge League and playing against the hosts and Qatar plus Bahrain jetting in to make it a quad series. So, I mean, good on them for you know sticking around and, and getting in some T20 matches as well. But yeah, Singapore lost five, played five in the Challenge League and then played five, lost five in this quad series. They're really down in the dumps. Uh, they did manage to tie against Bahrain, but then they um, they couldn't get over the line in the Super Over. So yeah, I, I do wonder if it's kind of a you know one of those situations where you know, they just start playing badly and then everything kind of just goes wrong and they don't uh, you know they don't really know where their next win's coming from because they're, they're playing with a, a Pretty experimental side, you know, a number of debutants in this quad series. Uh, so that's kind of playing into it. And, and of course, they were missing some big names, you know, Rohan, Rangarajan and co. Uh, from the Challenge League as well. So I guess they're in a bit of upheaval, but it just makes you think to that sort of golden moment in 2019 at the um, the Global Qualifiers where they'd, you know, they'd just beaten Scotland in, in the early rounds. They were riding high with, you know, Tim David in fine form and, and the team sort of coalescing around him. And, you know, you thought, you know, there's a pretty good chance that Singapore make it to a World Cup. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years, obviously Tim David is basically impossible to replace at this level. But even even without him, you know, they, they did have quite a lot of quality uh, throughout the, the lineup. And, yeah, they, they're just, you know, the wheels have really fallen off. I don't know what's happened. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's just the personnel uh, changing. You know, you look, someone butt's been appointed to the role I think in May um, and so I guess that's, that's more than half the year to make an impact and it seems like things have just gone from bad to worse under his uh, tenure so I'm, I'm not sure if they'll be reassessing his position but they definitely haven't done very well since he's been appointed and I don't know whether you can blame it all on the coach or whether there's something more seriously wrong or you know whether it's just that the guys are, are kind of depressed with their missing out on the challenge league and that they don't really want to be there I'm not sure but yeah they, they really have struggled 
on the on the positive side though, you know, looking at some of the performers in this series, Rizwan Butt from Bahrain is another one who's made some headlines and, and, and broken a record. Positive ones. Yes, yes. He took five wickets in six balls, which is quite the feat. The first T20I hat trick for Bahrain, it went wicket, wicket, dot, wicket, 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 which, I mean, getting a five-wicket haul in just six deliveries is... Pretty impressive. Uh, so congratulations on that one. And uh, as, as we've kind of alluded to earlier, you know, Bahrain, as one of those presumptive teams in the Challenge League playoff, have been looking pretty solid. You know, they haven't quite managed to get past Malaysia, who've been quite good in T20 cricket over the last little while. Virendeep Singh has, has found form again. But, you know, they got past Singapore twice and you know Singapore are a, a challenge league team so yeah i think i think Bahrain will be quietly confident with their chances looking ahead to the playoff and you kind of skipped over it but Malaysia have been very impressive here uh, and T20 is of course their their better format but yeah Virendeep Singh 250 runs in 5 matches 150 strike rate your mate side Aziz gone bananas 187 strike rate with a, a half century and uh, a couple of other rapid knocks down the order Zabaiti Zulkifle, their young wicketkeeper, been hitting a whole bunch of sixes. So, yeah, I mean, Malaysia, it's almost like they're a different team when they play T20 cricket uh, compared to 50-over cricket, where they, they really do struggle. So it's kind of a, almost a shame that Malaysia are in that Asia group. Uh, I know the Asia group, on one hand, is good because it gives a lot of opportunities for, for competitive cricket. But on the other hand, if they were in the East Asia Pacific, I think they'd be a pretty good shot of beating PNG in, in a T20 game, uh, even though we, we did see them. Tony Ura went to town against them uh, earlier in the year on a road in Nepal. I think at home, Malaysia, PNG, that'd be quite an interesting T20 matchup. I look at this, this region, it's probably... A- a good point to make given that we've talked about so much African cricket as well that you know this East Asia region and to be fair that the, the Gulf as well cricket in both East and West Asia seemingly are in a pretty good spot from an, uh, a competitive basis looking at, at some of the teams around the region and there seems to be a nice little structure as to how it's all put together and We've talked about Africa at great length on today's show as well. And there's no secret that with good organization and and good competition across those regions, both of those regions have been better for it. And you look outside into to other regions and places like South America. And to be fair, South America had the South American Championships going back a couple of months back, but teams are struggling for ICC membership in that part of the world at, that, at this stage, and it, it's meant that it's it's become a little bit tricky to kind of put on competitions of the same ilk as, as Asia and, and Africa. So, look, two regions that are, are seemingly in a good spot at the moment, and, and I think across the next couple of cycles, we will see the, the emergence of, of the regions, you know, on an even grander scale. And you can even go as far to say, you know, looking at the likes of, say, Namibia, making their push in in the World Cup of the T20 World Cup in 2021 and their one-day cricket structure and, and how everything's put together there. It's on the back of having such a competitive region below them as well and, and the likes of Uganda challenging them at, at any stage. So, you know, you need that, that competition at, at all levels for, for things to, to work out and, and for things to prosper. And yeah, these are two regions, again, just to reiterate, that are, that are really doing well uh, in that respect. Yeah, and, and just on that point, I think it's worth uh, congratulating Malaysia on hosting this tournament after you know, we all know about the, the loss of Kinrara Oval and you know, how important that was to Malaysian cricket. You know, the fact that they're still getting on the field, they're still hosting stuff, playing at alternative venues, uh, even though they lost their, you know, their marquee ground. Yeah, good, good on them, good on the Malaysian board for 
you know, for digging in and, and continuing to, to try and get as much cricket happening as possible. And yeah, I mean, it would have been pretty easy to kind of wallow in self-pity or something uh, about the, the Kinrara situation, but they're just getting on with it. Dare we sort of segue here and, and look at, well, this is how good some of the organisations have been in associate cricket <laughs> over the last couple of years. There's now a couple of boards that uh, I think we're going to... Res- they're, they're, uh, I yeah, think they're on the naughty the- list if we're, if we're going to use some sort of... Christmas parlance heading into the festive season, oh, good but one. it just kind of puts a nice little bow or, or a present bow on top of everything here. But a couple of boards uh, in the associate world who seem to be given almost every opportunity possible to prosper, only to to fall on their face. We're talking about USA and Nepal. If we haven't quite spelt it out properly for anyone out there, we'll start with USA and a story again that we kind of came across by accident. And it's a huge shout to to Nate Hayes for digging up this little nugget from USA Cricket, but he made an inquiry uh, in regards to, to Richard Doan and the organisation of USA Cricket, only to get a reply from USA Cricket to say that Richard Doan, as, as head of cricket operations, is no longer in the role. We don't know, uh, that. well, there's been no official word if he's been pushed or he's jumped. I think the inkling here and, and the vibe here is that he would not have left by his own devices, I think I can sort of put my hand up and hypothesize that, Nick. But this is a huge blow for USA Cricket if he has gone. And this, I think, for me, accentuates the need for Major League Cricket. Once it gets started, it needs to be faultless and it needs to go off like a fish milkshake if USA Cricket is to really prosper because I to be honest and looking from the outside and and other news that came out this week was that Shivnaran Chanderpaul is going to give up his coaching post with the under 19 and the senior USA women and I think the vibe there is that he wasn't exactly comfortable within the structure of USA cricket as well this goes to show that not only is there smoke there's certainly fire now in USA cricket and once again another governing body and another organization entrusted with moving cricket forward has done some great things in several respects but in other respects there's just so many questionable head-scratching decisions and I'll have one more sort of point after this when we do talk about Major League Cricket and it'll be a shout to everyone organizing Major League Cricket but I just don't know what the end game here is with, with USA Cricket and for every good decision that seems to be made, there, there seems to be a decision like this. And, and I don't really know where they go from here and losing someone with the quality that Richard Doan has. I, I just don't know what the direction is for USA Cricket. I mean, just objectively, losing Doney is, is a great shame for USA Cricket because he was, by all accounts, very committed to growing the game. And uh, we, we know that uh, with his work at the ICC as well, he was, he was one of the... One of the good guys, I guess, you know, he was always trying to improve international cricket and, and, you know, opportunities for the associates. And he has he has the administrative mind that you need as well, sort of behind the scenes in terms of um, pathway structures, which he was responsible for and just bringing people together and working out how to navigate, uh, yeah, I guess all the different priorities that the teams might have had um, and, and finding a way to work together and, and create a solution that, that helps everybody. And he was bringing that expertise to the US and that's something that they basically they sorely lack is is high quality expertise especially now 
I mean, Chanderpaul, you could always kind of see that it would be a temporary, like a stepping stone. I think it might have been his first full-time coaching gig. Uh, so, you know, you, you sort of do your time with an associate and, and prove you've got it and then move on. That's a bit of a shame, but that's that's kind of how it goes a lot of the time. So not too surprising that he's, he's moving on. But yeah, I don't know what's going on. I mean, Nate seems to think that, you know, you mentioned Major League Cricket and how it needs to... Um, go off um yeah I, I think the problem a lot of the time is that things are sort of going in two different directions and you have the major league cricket team sort of trying to prepare that tournament and you have some people within USAC who, who aren't necessarily so happy with the the deal involving major league cricket and and I guess USAC's cut of the pie um and you know not everyone's on the same page and not everyone is you know singing from the same hymn book to to take another christmas analogy perhaps so i don't really see where they go from here because you know they're losing quality staff left right and center apparently and who's who's being replaced we've also seen uh, peter de la pena of course another american cricket reporter well known uh, in associate circles uh, he subsequently tweeted that um, the money they've saved from no longer employing Richard Doan not being sent to pay the various employees and contractors that uh, haven't been paid for a number of months. So if that's not where the money's going, what is happening? We're just back into the kind of bad old days almost of you know the American Cricket Administration being very opaque, both in terms of where their money's going, but even decisions like getting rid of Richard Doan, they haven't replied to any of Nate's requests for comment, which indicates that they're not very interested really in being upfront about their decision making so yeah it's just not good enough from them honestly so many faceless men and women in response to all of this and in such positions of power of usa cricket and there's just no accountability here and i think it's something actually that a lot of people have bemoaned about the icc over the years is that a lot of these decisions were made in regards to event structures and and a membership and and other things and there was never really a face to the name responsible. Yes, there's been issues that have come up and, and fair play to some men and women in, in the ICC who have come up and put their hand up as, I don't know, I'm looking at someone like a Chris Tetley head of events who'd stick his neck out and say, look, this is why we've done this. You know, this is the decision. This is why we did it. End of. And that's respectable. But if you move to USA Cricket, uh, who's making these decisions? We, we have no semblance. We have we have no way to identify who's responsible for all this. We know that there are a lot of private entities sniffing around and being involved at a very high level. A lot of the decisions that USA Cricket make, there are a lot of politics in USA Cricket, even from a playing point of view. Uh, Lisa Ramjet not being picked in the under-19s Women's World Cup team screams of, of politics and the pay-to-play scenario and the hurdles that American cricketers have to go through just to be available. And again, it, it comes back to no one's putting their hand up and being responsible for this. And the people that I feel sorry for in USA Cricket are the many volunteers and the many people who are working on the ground organising. And Nate's one of them, but there are several people and certain players around who are helping organise and, and putting up Major League Cricket and, and hoping that it's the best product it can be. And with these faceless men making such reckless decisions, it's going to take an unbelievable Herculean effort from a lot of people on the ground, the Nates of the world and others, to put on a good Major League Cricket and, and good grassroots tournaments leading up to Major League Cricket. And they don't deserve that pressure. It's not fair for anyone who does have a voice and a name out there looking to try and help USA Cricket. It, they shouldn't be responsible for fixing all of this. But unfortunately, a lot of the responsibility has fallen on their shoulders. And we need to give a shout out to a lot of people in USA Cricket who, who do some excellent work setting up all of this. 
And it just seems that the decisions from above are dictating basically everything negative that comes out of USA Cricket. I'm dumbfounded and there's no responsibility. There's no one putting their hand up and saying, look, we were responsible for making this decision of Richard Doan's departure, assuming that he was pushed out. It's no good. And there's so many USA cricketers out there, national team players on both the men's and women's side, just dealing with politics at, at every turn. And one of the points we made in a previous podcast was that you don't get success on the field if you have a shambles of a board offered. I think Scotland are really the only exception to the rule, given that they've had to deal with everything that they've got themselves into over the last couple of years. And it seems as though they're making positive decisions to step out of that. But Namibia, the gold standard of associate boards, doing everything in their power. And Herod Erasmus talked about how important it is to have a cohesive board that deals with players and the organization from grassroots level. Again, looking at League Two teams, Oman, solid board structure, solid governing body, solid team on the field. Namibia, solid board, solid domestic structure, solid team on the field. The Netherlands, KNCB, have been light years ahead of where they were six months, 12 months ago. Look what they did on the field. They had an outstanding preparation before a T20 World Cup. They played some of the best cricket they've ever played. I mean, it's it's not rocket science. And we, we talk about USA constantly being a shambles. And Paul, with another head coach departure, I'm sure we'll talk about in a second in a, in a, in a relevant point. But Nick, you know, it doesn't take Einstein to work out where the issues are here. Well, even Scotland, you refer to their... The investigation sort of triggered by uh, uh, Majid Huck uh, in terms of the racism uh, allegations that are floating around. The Scottish administration actually dealt with that. They didn't, you know, sweep it under the carpet. They they put out a report, uh, an investigation. They, yeah. uh, you know, called for submissions from players who felt like they'd been mistreated and they actually dealt with the issue. And this is kind of a little bit like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with with the umpires making bad decisions versus the umpires losing control of players. You know, it's one thing to make a mistake, but what kind of determines your quality is what you do afterwards. And the the boards that you talk about, they're certainly not perfect, but they are putting in place measures to try and address their shortcomings. And you know, Scotland obviously with their their report and Namibia have had trouble in terms of getting the the majority uh, Black African community involved in cricket and and they're certainly putting in place a lot of programs uh, at, at school level and you know outreach uh, events and whatnot um, we saw their road show a year or two ago and you know a number of players have, have sort of come through their, their development efforts and obviously it's an ongoing process but it's something that they're aware of and that they're working on whereas the US board I don't you know we're not hearing anything really about I mean even something as basic as what their plan is to pay their employees who haven't been paid for months you know that seems like yeah. you know step number 1 and they can't even get that going so yeah it's it's very disappointing that this is a country where there is such a, a vibrant cricket scene and you know, I've seen it myself and you know, obviously there's Nate, who's um, a tireless <laughs> worker in the Morrisville community, but it's not just him. Um, the whole Morrisville uh, cricket scene is is amazing. It's you know one of the most committed that I've ever been involved in. And there's these people in the US who absolutely love cricket, and there's even people in the US who love American cricket, and that's always been the problem. But they just at the top level, the administration. Yeah, we we thought they were back on track a couple of years ago, but it just seems like they're slipping back into the old regional factional politicking. And where do they? It's it's just, it's just so frustrating because they could be so much better. Yeah. And shall we bring in the other board that have shown uh, an ineptitude over the, well, almost as long as I can remember now in associate cricket, but uh, another head coach departure for Nepal. I've lost count. 
if I'm perfectly honest, uh, even with Pabudu coming back again a second time round. But uh, Manoj Prabhaka has left. Can made a statement. Again, the statement was that he departed. And again, I don't know. It's not a zero-sum thing here, whether or not he was pushed or whether or not he jumped. I, I think there might have been a word to him and he sort of made his, his bed and, and left. And again... It goes back to another point that we make about Nepali cricket and their own problems. And a lot of them, it's funny, you could not get almost two nations as completely different as the USA and Nepal. If you talk about population, you talk about location, you talk about culture, you talk about the size of their geography. Yet they just seem to have the same problems. It's just funny how associate cricket can be such a leveler here. But they've once again made a decision on the head coach. I don't think I've seen the application process for the next one yet and whether or not they're going to be the same parameters set as they have with all the other head coaches that they've brought in which don't make sense and we can talk about that maybe in brief but how many head coaches does it take for Nepal to realize that their problem is not the head coach and that when your domestic structure is such a heap of rubbish how do you ever think you're going to produce players who can play 50 over cricket if you just barely play any semblance of 50 over cricket I know there are competitions around but they're so small and they go for such a little space of time across the Nepali calendar batting has been a problem pretty much as long as Nepal have ever been competitive in international cricket and no one's ever found the answer from the inside but they're also never willing to have any help externally from the outside I've seen just I think an overall let down feeling by a number of Nepali cricket fans on Twitter to the point where they barely get up to even watch Nepal play international cricket at this point things are just that poor on that front they've lost touch with that part of the game as well I just don't know where the team goes from here there's young talent but We'll always say there's young talent in Nepali cricket, but any sort of failure or any anything that looks like a failure in, in a team's eyes and all of a sudden they're out of the team, they never get a chance to prove themselves again once they go back in the team. Captaincy's gone to Rohit Pordell. There's been so many shuffles. They've played the most players in the league to cycle. There's no continuity. How do you expect any progress if there's no continuity, but also no positive change from where the problem lies? And that problem lies in a lack of domestic 50 over cricket. They're battling at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I just... What what to say that we haven't already said? I, I feel like that every time Nepal is in the cricketing news, it's either I mean sometimes it's for uh, for exciting cricket, but most of the time it's for really bizarre decisions from their administration. I mean, look, what could Manoj really have done? Your point is yeah, um, nothing <laughs> exactly. Like I mean, maybe fiddled around the edges, played a slightly better eleven, got one more win or something. But I mean. That's not what we're talking about. That That's not a structural fix. And I guess there's kind of an idea in Nepali cricket administration that they, it just seems like they're always looking for the quick fix. You know, you bring in Pabudu Dasanayaka or you bring in Dave Watmore or you bring in Prabhaka, or, you know, whoever. If you don't have the players to back it up, it doesn't matter who the coach is. There's a limit to what they can do. And meanwhile, their T20 domestic competition is apparently scheduled to start in two days' time from when we're recording. So, <laughs> I don't know. Is that even going to happen? The One of their franchise uh, owners, somehow the ownership was, was being shuffled around. I don't know. It's just always seems like there's 27 different things happening at once in Nepal and none of them are being addressed in a particularly good way and, and they just kind of stumble their way through and, and somehow 
get halfway to something decent and just sort of held everything together with gaffer tape. But at some point, that approach catches up with you. And I don't know. I mean, what can we say? They they need to really address their, their domestic structure. They need to really address their administrative structure. None of the you know, required reforms really seem to be happening. I think we're just going to see more of the same over the next year or so. It's broken record material at this point. I think we've made the same point for about three years. And have I seen... I'm struggling to come up with a time where Can have sat out and blueprinted a 50-over competition where international players just get some quality time in the middle against decent bowling attacks at domestic level. And I think the other thing too is that you're a product of your environment in that the Dribuvan University ground has never really been a flat surface. On that square, there are certain wickets on that square that do help uh, batters and they are better for batters, but... I just don't see how you can ever make any progress if you just don't have that platform in place, if you don't have the building blocks in place. And a lot of the time, Nepal have kind of chased things for the very top and been like, oh, we look, we need the best head coach. We need to tour these places. We need to do this. When in actual fact, you actually need to kind of build it from the ground up just like anything else. And, and it's not just a, a makeshift structure where you can just bring someone in and expect them to be a miracle worker. And, and something that we alluded to, I suppose, when we brought the point up to start with, Whenever they put these job postings up, they're always looking for some unicorn, a person that doesn't exist. And when you look at their requirements for who should take over as coach, there's only probably two or three people in the world who fit all the requirements and they're not going to go to Nepal, you know, with all due respect to to coach them. So you need to find a, a better fit and you need to find someone who has experience at an associate level who can move them up because there's been so many times and this happens across the associate world where they hire you know Salman Butt at Singapore for example is probably a fine example although there are you know more malicious undertones probably that go with that appointment but there are so many full member big time coaches that come into associate cricket and they can't hack it or it's not that they're big time coaches it's that they're big name players who are kind of either just starting out their coaching or or haven't who try to become big time coaches this is a, a constant issue in associate cricket is they just see the the big name oh this guy played however many test matches he he must be good he must know what he's talking about when yeah as you say someone who's come up through the associate system is probably going to be better yeah it's funny and without pissing in in tim's pocket there's been a number of people on on social media over the last like few months who have actually put up his name as someone who should ceo nepali cricket and it's it's funny like he would actually do a really good job there well then then that's the other problem is that they always ask for someone who's Napoli yeah he's never been eligible for the position that they've that they've posted for so I mean they're lost I guess uh, <laughs> hey Tim Merry Christmas uh, I don't know I think he's dodged a bullet hanging out in Vanuatu rather than having to try and deal with the mess that is Napoli cricket yeah no no you you, you Flat out right on that one, Nick. Uh, probably a nice a nice moment to wrap up this week's show. Thanks again, Nick, uh, on yet another emerging cricket podcast. Uh, from just a, a calendar point of view, I'm not 100% sure. We haven't worked out what we're going to do next week just yet, but we will let you know what's going on. We'll wrap the year uh, on a future show. But once again, thank you for jumping on and listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast wherever you do get your podcasts. Tell a mate, pass the pot around, uh, as well as the website, emergingcricket.com and across all uh, your social media platforms that you'll be on over Christmas. Uh, whether or not you do celebrate Christmas or not, have a great holiday season and uh, we'll all speak to you soon.